0: My name's Adrian Goldberg, and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report, and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, writer and historian James Hawes, who has written a must-have book, The Shortest History of England, which I read after devouring his previous tome, The Shortest History of Germany. There are so many fascinating takeaways from his England book. The perennial North-South divide in Britain, the idea that London and the South-East rule through an innate conservative majority, and the subject I most want to talk to him about, what James sees as the inevitable decline of the UK as a political entity, and even the destruction of Britain as we know it. Underlying his analysis is a recognition and perhaps a fear of the growing English nationalism that fuelled Brexit and propelled Boris Johnson to Downing Street. Before we get cracking, just a reminder that the Byline Times doesn't have wealthy backers or corporate interests to sustain it. We rely for income on people like you, taking out subscriptions to our brilliant monthly newspaper, the Byline Times. Your subs also help fund Byline TV this podcast, and our fantastic news-breaking website, which is where you'll find details of how to subscribe. Just go to bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. And if you have already done so, many thanks. Now, James Hawes on the breakup of Britain and what he regards as the unavoidable demise of the United Kingdom. The first thing I think to remember, Adrian, and, and it's one of
1: these things where often the things that we just see every day in our lives, we're brought up with, we forget to even question them. And that's just how young the UK is. I mean, it's only 220 years old and it was founded for one purpose. It was only founded to control Ireland. Now, really, it should have died 100 years ago. And in many ways, the leaving of Ireland was its death sentence, because if you have a club which you've created to control one member and that member goes, it immediately throws into question the whole reason for that existing in the first place. And I think historians of the future will see that the leaving of Ireland as not just the beginning of the death of the British Empire, but as the beginning of the end of the UK as well.
0: Of course, England or the United Kingdom hasn't quite left Ireland because there's a little part in the north of Ireland, which is still part of the United Kingdom. And we'll come to that and its role in the possible destruction of the UK. But for people who haven't read your book, just explain why Ireland in particular then became the cause of the creation of the United Kingdom.
1: For the United Kingdom, of course, came Great Britain, which was another artificial creation only a century earlier. Again, Great Britain itself is no great old time honoured state. And that was created off the back of of, of an England, which was by the end of the 17th century, essentially a failed state. Now, there's another book being published really recently by a Cambridge academic, which completely backs up this idea that a long aftermath of the Reformation and the Civil Wars, you know, we ended up, let's not forget this, we English, ended up inviting the Dutch to invade us. Now, if that's not the definition of a failed state, what is? Now, out of the ruins of this, or the chaos of this, the so-called Glorious Revolution, Great Britain was founded. Now, Ireland was still notionally a separate state under what they call the dynastic union. It had the same king, but it had its own parliament and so forth, unlike Scotland and Wales. That did not work. So by 1798, by the end of the 18th century, Ireland was in a state of complete rebellion, hoping for liberation by the French revolutionary forces almost, which almost came to pass. And having crushed this extremely bloody rebellion in 1798, the government of Westminster decided to do what we now call direct rule. They decided the only option was to declare that Ireland was actually now a part of the same state, to be governed by London, and they invented a new name for it, the United Kingdom. So this UK whose flags we wave was only invented off the back of our inability
0: to live with a separate island. And when we say that Ireland wasn't working, it wasn't working from a very specifically English, London-centric point of view.
1: Yes, it was not allowing itself. The Dublin Parliament even, even though the Dublin Parliament in the late 18th century was controlled by what's called the Protestant descendancy of land-owning Protestants, even that was starting to show signs of wanting to act completely independently from London so that, It was not
0: able to control Ireland by proxy anymore. So they had to go for, say, what we now call direct rule. So the creation of Ireland as an independent state just over 100 years ago now, then you think unpins the United Kingdom. Why does the UK from that point on have to start unfolding?
1: If you look at what happened in those 10 years before 1922, it's a really extraordinary time in British politics because we have one particular figure, and it's Winston Churchill, no less, and I myself was astonished to find this out. Churchill in 1913 said that the UK Parliament, which he he loved the UK that if the UK Parliament was to act as a UK Parliament, that is to enact the will of the whole UK, it had to force through Irish Home Rule because that was the will of the UK Parliament, of a majority of MPs. And he actually said in March 1913 that he would force this through even, quote, even if it meant bloodshed on an extended scale. Just think about that for a minute. This is Winston Churchill saying it was the job of the UK Parliament to force through Irish Home Rule even at gunpoint by the use of violence, if necessary against, in other words, against the Loyalists of Northern Ireland. Now, that's quite an incredible statement when you think about it from our perspective, but that's Churchill, not me, talking in 1913. And from our perspective, I think what we can see from that is that by failing to act as a genuinely UK parliament, Westminster effectively declared the UK was a busted flush as an idea.
0: And... Within this story arc as well, you have the difference between North and South. And North and South, not just in an English context, but in a British context. The, the South, you say, going back really to Norman times, if we can talk about it in these terms, has had a, an inbuilt conservative majority. It's where the land owning, property owning wealth of the country has been concentrated. North of the River Trent has been a different country. It's been a different country. If you look back to the Iron Age,
1: you know, an Iron Age archaeologist, my my brother was one, actually, and he says, you know, you can actually look at, at just the archaeological plan of a settlement in the Iron Age and any decent archaeologist will tell you straight away if that's north or south of the Trent. Because it's just that geology defines so much of us, particularly, obviously, until very recently, all the economy was agricultural, for tens of thousands of years, ever since the invention of agriculture. So that if you have completely different geology and climate, which you do north of the Trent, different soil and everything, the rocks are 200 million years older in the north. It just changes the whole setup of your society. Of course, that switches around, bizarrely, in the Industrial Revolution, because those same rocks just happen to contain all the minerals you want. And so w- what fascinatingly happens is that after the Industrial Revolution, is you suddenly have the north is muscled up massively. And for the first time in history, really, the North can actually say, as it does in the height of the the 19th century, we're actually challenging the domination of the South. That's why you get the Chartists in Manchester. You, You know, you get Joseph Chamberlain in Birmingham trying to really challenge the notion of dominance from the South, because that twist of history has suddenly flipped things around. So that what were the poorest agricultural soils have now become the richest mineral soils. And that's one of the great sort of things that's going on in Britain in the 19th century. But essentially, that north-south divide has been there. You know, if you'd asked me when I started this book, when did the north-south divide start? I would probably have said Margaret Thatcher, deindustrialization. and I myself really—I have—I was completely astonished just to learn, for example, that in the 14th century, Cambridge and Oxford universities actually divided their student bodies up into northerners and southerners, officially, aurales and boreales, as they called them and called them separate nations was the word they used. Uh, It's extraordinary how far that goes back. It goes right back to the Venerable Bede, for God's sake, the first Anglo-Saxon historian. He divides the English into those who live north of what he calls the Humber, but he means the Trent, um, and those who live south of it. So it remains a a defining fact of our politics to this day, I think.
0: Once we get to the era of parliamentary politics, you suggest that that north-south difference with an inbuilt conservative Majority in the South has been exacerbated by our 1st past the post system.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the most astonishing things to look at is a map of which parties are ruling England now, and not talking about the UK, before and after the Third Reform Act of 1884. Now, before that, like in most of history, who runs the country has been decided by a very small number of elite voters. After 1884, most males over 21 have the vote. And so we have mass democracy for the first time. And straight away, the first election after that, 1885, you see that England basically starts to vote on tribal grounds. And suddenly the south of England, the the southern, the southern quadrant of Britain, whatever you want to call it, becomes this tribal fortress, which we call the Tory party. It's not really about politics. It's about tribes. And that has remained the case ever since the Third Reform Act. You've had this almost unassailable tribal fortress of a thing which calls itself the Tory party ranged up against the Northern English in league with the Celts, just like in the actual civil war in the 17th century, which was called first the Liberal Party, then it was called the Labour Party. But really, I call it the League of Outer Britain, because it's nothing to do with politics. Really, at the bottom line, it's all valence voting, it's all
0: tribes. Although you could argue that the tribal voting that you described reflects perhaps a difference in values in the communities of the north relative to the communities of the south and the southeast.
1: Yeah, and you you can certainly say, I mean, what tribes don't arise automatically. Absolutely. I mean, as you say, the south of England has been the richest part of England since before records began, since Julius Caesar, since before Julius Caesar landed. So that, yes, over centuries, over millennia, Those different forms, those different degrees of wealth, those different kinds of economy leads to a whole different way of organising things, which then becomes a kind of self-generating sort of tribal culture. So that people in the north of England, rightly or wrongly, regard themselves as more instinctively communitarian, as more open as more friendly to their neighbors and so forth. Whereas people in the South of England seem to regard themselves as more kind of free market buccaneering sort of people with a tendency to tug the forelock to the local landowner and that sort of thing. So it's a very interesting, and the thing about this is that it's, again, it's one of those things you you don't, it's like not seeing your hand in front of your face. You get any random Englishman, say in a pub in Mallorca, meeting another random Englishman at a pub in Mallorca within Two seconds of meeting, they will put each other down as, as southerners and northerners. That's the first thing they'll do. The next thing they'll do is posh or not <laughs> and and the english will every English person will do those two operations within probably a second of opening their mouths to each other It's quite extraordinary because for well forever in the sense of the north southern divide and for a thousand years in the sense of the class divide, this has been the case in England, so that If I introduce myself to you, you've never met me, and I say, my name is uh, Hugo de Montmorency, you'll immediately assume I'm posh. And you'll probably be right, bizarrely, because the strangest fact of all is that there's this massive survey done in 2013, even reported in the Daily Mail, which said that um, if you have a Norman surname, you are statistically still more likely to go to Oxford and more likely to be rich. It's quite extraordinary how that's lasted. So we English, never mind the mess of the UK, we English ourselves are so messed up by this geographical split and by this class structure that's overlaid that for a
0: thousand years, that it's no wonder we're in such a political state. And going back to that Norman issue, the Norman conquest of 1066, from then onwards in English history, you have a small elite of people, the Normans intermarry with the elite English aristocracy, and they use language particularly the French language to distinguish themselves from, as it were, the indigenous English, the native English. And even as you describe it, the the English aristocracy, they buy into that, they intermarry, they adopt the manners, but crucially, they adopt the language of the Normans. And again, these are things which may seem as though they're based in history from hundreds of years ago, and they are, but they're still rooted today in our life, in our culture, and in our politics.
1: Yeah, it's always best to show, not tell Ages, So here we go, right? I'm going to say to you two sentences in English, to you and your listeners. Here's one. I can speak to you, my countrymen, using words, all of which are taken straight from the English tongue which the Normans stole from us. Or I can say, my compatriots, I address you this morning, employing discourse derived entirely from the French language. That's both English, but they both have totally different roots. And if I open my mouth in one or two of those registers, you as an Englishman know exactly to which lot I belong, instinctively now a thousand years after the conquest.
0: That works out then, post-industrial evolution, when you say there is this moment when this traditional north-south divide is briefly turned on its head, or at least challenged how does the south maintain its control how does it ensure that power and deference are still directed in its way in its favor and the answer you suggest is the creation of the public schools which absorbed the sons especially the sons not the daughters the sons of the wealthy industrialists and gave them something that we call RP, received pronunciation, which took them away from the language of their forebears. Exactly that. It's often people in the
1: 19th century, you find this with things like Robert Peel and the Irish independence and things. People spoke very openly in those days among the elite. And the man who founded the whole modern public school system that we know from all those, you know, 20s kids' book and things, actually said quite openly in this big sort of Peel article he wrote in 1851, we've got to stop the North Being different, it's hard. He said, "It's it's odious what we see up there. We must have a new system of public schools to turn them essentially into Anglican Southern English gentlemen." And that that whole thing that then, for the next hundred years, becomes this sort of thing, which again we accept as normal—the English public school type—is completely invented in the second half of the nineteenth century, with that purpose of keeping together the elite of England in the face of this north-south split. And it works perfectly because RP, which is first called public school pronunciation, then received pronunciation, then it's adopted by the BBC vitally in 1921. It just steamrollers all regional dialects among the elite, really until 20 years ago. You cannot appear on the BBC unless you speak RP. It just can't happen. So that among those who run the country, they share... This accent which they will recognize whether they're in you know, in in Cardiff or Ceylon or Australia or wherever they are across the empire.
0: They're all speak the same way. And it's it's a deliberate creation again. I want to come back then to the way in which first Past the post helps to uphold as well this north-south divide, because you suggest that there is this innate southern conservative bias, and then there's this. Range of parties who you describe as the collectively the League of Outer Britain. And if we had a different kind of voting system, the League of Outer Britain at times may well have been able to outvote Southern England. But because of First Past the Post, Southern England continues to rule the roost. The
1: whole point of First Past the Post is to deliver a clear, well, a winner even if it's only a 51 versus 49, like in our referendum. And that obviously will exacerbate if there's a small but definite regional bias towards a certain class or a certain way of thinking, then obviously that will be massively exacerbated so that it only takes a few hundred thousand votes to swing 50 seats or whatever it's going to be. The trouble is that then becomes a self-supporting devil's circle, if you want, because once you've established that you have this kind of regional control, essentially, over different parties, and it works for Labour as well, by the way, this, when you're in power, you keep on feeding preference, investment to your part. Wilson did this in the Labour in the 60s, of course, or the Tories have done it whenever they're in power. It creates a self-supporting cycle, which makes those distinctions bigger and bigger. And the vital time we see that is in the 1950s. Um, And how damaging that is, because we entered the 1950s in not a bad state, actually, because Atlee's drive for export had been very successful. We were getting back on our feet. Atlee okayed the atom bomb and the hydrogen bomb and so forth. We were still at a minor world power. But if you look at the electoral maps of the 50s, we are just locked completely. You have the north of England backed by the industrial Scots and Welsh versus the South of England, which is just winning every time. And so that the United Kingdom, it's a vital decade, which we entered as the second biggest carmaker in the world still and so forth. And by the time it finished, we'd lost that edge to France and Germany, just to take that one example. We'd lost the cutting edge to the Americans completely in aviation, both just
0: concentrated on their core, rather than talking about the nation of England as a whole. So you've got the... Beginning of the end, as you see it, of the United Kingdom with Ireland's independence or the, the majority of Ireland becoming independent in the early 1920s. And you have this other factor at play, which relates to the decade that you're now talking about the 1950s, Britain emerging from the Second World War as a victorious nation. But it, it seems to be one of those cliches, but true the nation that won the war. And lost the peace. You say that post war, the UK was the greatest detonation in history, saved by martial aid from the United States, but let down by poor governance. Absolutely. Poor
1: governance and delusion. Now, jeffrey Wheatcross just published a really interesting book about the shadow of Churchill and how that by the time I was born, 1960, At that stage, we were still spending something like eight or 9% of our GDP on defense, which we'd been doing all through the 50s at a time when Germany was spending literally nothing on defense. So Germany was spending its money on new railways, electric railways and roads and things. We were spending so much. You know, my father was a Navy officer in the 1950s and said Malta was still full of gigantic British fleets at a time when they were serving no useful purpose except to buttress the kind of fantasy that unfortunately our leading men on both parties had, that we were still somehow going to be a world power somehow. And that the trouble with that was that what we had to do, they all realised that what we had to do to stay a world power was ride on America's coattails. It was the only way to do it. Our politicians, right up to Blair, were just snow-blinded by this idea of being America's wingman. But to do that, we had to have inordinate defence spending to impress America. If America's going to treat us as special, which they did right up to the early sixties, they kept supporting the pound. We had to show we are worth having as an ally. So we had to spend more money on, on defense, which meant we were more dependent on the Americans. We got into this death spiral there of desperately trying to impress the Americans by spending more than we needed to on defense in order to stay a world power at their discretion. So it's sort of weird. And that whole period, the whole 20 years after the war is just complete disaster for Britain.
0: Interesting you say that. I mean, that's the key point is we remained a world power, but at someone else's discretion, at the United States discretion. But of course, ultimately, if you are a world power at somebody else's discretion, you're not really a world power. The world by then had changed. We were financially exhausted and other countries, but most notably the United States had developed economically, developed militarily, and simply were stronger than us on the world stage.
1: I think it's important for people to understand that the real background to the whole Brexit thing is all about this. If you look at the people, the drivers of Brexit, people like Dan Hannan and Fox, when they were young men in the early nineties, they were members of that group that John Major himself, a Tory MP, Tory PM rather, called Bastards. They wanted to break away from Europe in order to be essentially the 52nd state of a Republican America. That was their dream. That is their dream, frankly. That's what people like Air and Banks really, really want. They want us to be, to all intents and purposes, an adjunct of Republican Trump-like America. That's why they love Trump so much. That's why they wanted to rip us away from Europe, to go for what they called, in fact, buccaneering capitalism, their fantasy. And that somehow, if we were just America's wingman again, we could be part of Empire 2.0, whatever they call it. So that fantasy is still there, and
0: it's what's led to what is, in my humble opinion, the disaster of Brexit. So the delusion of empire forces Britain down a a path into which Labour and Conservative subscribe from the the 1950s onwards. Perhaps in later years there has been a greater recognition that Britain is no longer an imperial... Power, and perhaps many people would find it offensive even that Britain would aspire to be one. But you think on the Tory right, that is the driver for Brexit, that Britain can somehow reclaim its imperial status, albeit with the continued permission of the United States, and that by leaving the EU, we are closer to achieving that. Anyone who looks back at the records of the 90s will find that that's the genesis of the Brexit fantasy.
1: And the tragedy of it is, it's just a moth-eaten fantasy 30 years old now, because it, it was born at a time when the Soviet Union had just collapsed. And you could say as a sane person in the early 90s, look, there's no other game in town. American-style liberal democracy is now bound to rule the world. China hasn't arisen yet. Russia's on its knees. Who else are you going to follow? So, okay, fine, our national destiny is to follow the Americans into this brave new world of, you know, George W. Bush and, and free market buccaneering. It wasn't insane then, although it was, you know, deluded even then to think the Americans would care about us that much. But now it's just completely mad to detach yourself from the world's greatest free trade bloc, with China overtaking America America in a virtual state of civil war the notion that America is unchallenged hegemon of the world now is just bananas and for us to willingly put all our national future on this one bet that the Americans will somehow treat us as a special case which they are patently not doing in
0: trade negotiations is just completely bananas in terms of the unstitching of the UK is devolution a significant part is that the point at which the uk in practical terms starts to fall apart it is
1: and it's been happening for far longer than we think we go right back you know keir hardie founder of the labor party on his personal manifesto home rule for scotland was part of it right from the start back in the 1870s we often forget that in 1912 there was actually a home rule for scotland bill going through parliament it just got lost like so much else in the chaos of World War one and the devolution particularly as expressed by Blair's 1997 referendums in Scotland and Wales, it's kind of the last holding attempt because that's what I, when I talk about the League of Outer Britain that's always been the strange thing about it. It's essentially a league of the northern English, the industrial Celts and the Scots but to hold that league together, you've got to do this really strange mental kind of jiggery-pokery, where you're saying, okay, we can simultaneously satisfy the nationalists and hold the UK together. And it's always been really creaky, frankly. And Blair thought that's why particularly he wanted referendums. He thought that if he could nail it down with a referendum, not just Parliament saying, that that would put the SNP to bed. It just didn't work, obviously, because in fact, what happened, of course, 18 years later is the SNP just
0: destroyed Labour in Scotland. And that really is the death knell. The League of Outer Britain then starts to fall apart, doesn't it? Because once you have a strong nationalist party in Scotland, perhaps the growth of nationalism in Wales as well over time, then Labour's support as a national party of the United Kingdom disappears, doesn't it? It's like like <laughs> Labour, once this thing starts to change, once this dynamic is in play, Labour In a sense, has been the architect of its own downfall. Yeah,
1: it was a downfall which was built in a sense from the start because the great question of what is the UK in the age of democracy was never really answered, honestly, by people. It almost was under that liberal regime before the First World War. Because what again at the risk of boring of death, I'm quoting to quote Churchill, what Churchill wanted was a totally devolved UK. He wanted representatives from Dublin, Cardiff, and Edinburgh. And from Yorkshire, Lancashire and the Midlands to be sent to London to what he called an imperial parliament, which would exist kind of side by side with the English parliament. And each country would have its own parliament. In other words, Churchill believed that the only way to hold the UK apart was to have a genuine, full on devolution. Home rule for all was the actually the official policy of the Liberal Party, of which Churchill was then a leading light. And it means, if you try to transpose it to now, it means although it's be much more difficult for any, any league, now Ireland's already gone its own way, a genuinely free alliance, a progressive alliance, whatever you want to call it, so that's what some people are calling it now, of anti-Tory forces from the north of England, from Scotland and Wales, but not within the UK, saying, no, this is a genuinely free league. We believe that in some way, and I, and I believe this, actually, that we on this island, and even on these islands... In some way, we are linked by history and culture, language and so forth, that if there's a genuinely free alliance between genuinely sovereign peoples, the British Isles, the Anglo-Celtic archipelago, whatever you want to call it, could actually work as a kind of zone. It could have done in 1912. In 1912, every Irish historian agrees with this, the Irish would have been happy with Devo max. They did not want to break away from us in a violent revolution in 1912. We could have had a British Isles hanging together, but we failed because we failed to act as, you know, it was still too dominated by the English. The Parliament in Westminster would not, in the last analysis, act genuinely as a UK Parliament. You see, what happens in British politics is this. Whenever that South of England bloc finds itself outvoted by the outer UK, It turns really radically violent straight away. In 1912 to 13, the Tories were openly backing violent secession of the north of Ireland, for example, quite openly. The degree of hatred to Harold Wilson, for example, in the 70s was extremely violent. That's why you get that kind of dreaded tooth and claw under Thatcher. Let's stuff the north once and for all in the miners' strike, which was really what was going on, out of vengeance to that. And that's what you got, again, in the Blair years. Because let's not forget, Tony Blair never, ever took the Southeast of England. The Tories always had a majority in the Southeast. And so that that corner of England, which feels itself outvoted by the UK, ends up hating the UK, frankly. And it wants to bust it up itself. And if it doesn't get its own way, it will tear it apart. In the end, it's the internal problems of England that make the UK impossible.
0: And people would say that that is perhaps embodied then in the government of Boris Johnson. Well, what the Conservative Party did under Johnson is essentially they finally
1: embraced their destiny, which was to become the party of English nationalism, based in the South, but trying strongly to appeal to the North, which they did in the late 19th century as well, let's not forget. And if any of your listeners come from Liverpool, for example, you know, so, sorry about this, but, you know, by playing the sectarian card, for example, the Tories successfully made Liverpool into a Tory stronghold right after the 1950s. So that what you have then is that Boris Johnson's 2019 campaign was really just a reboot of Lord Salisbury's campaigns from the 1890s. So instead of saying we're appealing to the UK, he's saying, right, it's, it's a pretty well open English nationalist appeal. We won't talk about Protestants and Catholics anymore because that's Victorian stuff, we'll talk about English levelling up or English jobs for English people or English votes on English issues against the Scots, that sort of thing. But the appeal is really clearly, and it's not just me saying this, the Financial Times people have noted this, is that really the Conservative Party under Johnson has changed to something very close to the English National Party in all but name. It's given up on Scotland. Everyone knows in the 29 campaign,
0: the Tories just completely gave up on Scotland. And they appear to have given up on Northern Ireland because behind the rhetoric, the creation of the border down the Irish Sea, which Boris Johnson said would only happen over his dead body, has happened. De facto, we have a border down the Irish Sea. In a sense, all that's happened is that some Tories, whether instinctively or under the
1: kind of mind of some sort of mathematical electoral wizard like Cummings, or at least like he thinks he is, have sat down and said, look, actually, do you know what? The only thing that's stopping us ruling England forever is the UK. Because as things are presently looking, as they've been since the 1884 reform act really the Tories have won seven out of eight approximately elections in England in that time. In other words, the Tories might just have sat down in some quiet room and said, you know, we don't want the UK anymore because we let the Scots go, let the Northern Irish go. Who cares about Wales? We will rule England forever. And that's something that Northern English people should think of very carefully before they think of voting Johnson again. Because if that happens, if the UK falls apart, and I think it's going to happen because when Scotland's gone, not just the UK, but Great Britain is, is a historical non-entity. England on its own. If you took a map of England to sort off the bits of Scotland and Wales, look at, that, look at that like a jigsaw puzzle on its own. That country will almost always be governed by the Tories. Unless you can have... A leader of the Labour Party, or whatever you want to call it, who can somehow appeal to people in the key battleground areas of England, which essentially means the West Midlands and the Northern Home Counties. That's all that counts in England. They're the only swing areas, really. So that means you've got to have a a Labour Party which is somehow capable of making inroads into the Tory heartlands. And that's really only been Attlee and Blair who've ever done that. Wilson didn't really do it to any extent. So it's an almost impossible task. You know, So the Northern English should really be thinking very carefully about, about trying to construct a kind of multinational alliance and a really of free peoples, and the, because the issue was always, the Northern English always provided by far the most votes and foot soldiers and MPs in those alliances, which we call the Labour Party, the Liberal Party. But when it came to it, they weren't quite prepared to act like that. They still acted as English. They said, well, we've, now, we've now won our general election under Atley or under Blair. Right, well, we will just run the whole of England then. And they didn't really deliver. That's what led to Ireland leaving in the end. So that the Northern English have got to see which way the cookie crumbles, that without those Celtic allies, just like in the Civil War in the 17th century, without Celtic allies, the North of England cannot withstand the power of the South under usual circumstances. So they've got to create this alliance somehow, or else the whole of English politics has is, is got to go through some melting pot experience. And history is not good on that, you know. Because the last time England was a separate country, in other words, before the union with Scotland, we were basically a failed state who had to ask the Dutch to invade to sort us out, to stop us having another civil war. So I really do have grave, grave doubts about the stability of England as a separate country if it ever came to that.
0: But that, at the moment, is the reality that you think is likeliest based on the big arc of history covered in your book?
1: Absolutely. I think the
0: breakup of the UK is inevitable,
1: has in fact been inevitable since 1921. Scotland, I believe, will go quite soon. I think really since the COVID epidemic struck two years ago now, everything has been frozen. And I said in the book, it's like one of the scenes from The Matrix. So the bullet's coming towards your head and suddenly everything freezes. And the bullet's just coming very, very, very slowly towards our heads. But the moment, if and when, God willing, the COVID finally unthaws at that moment that bullet's going to come back to full speed and it's going to hit the UK right between the eyes
0: and it's coming. James Hawes and his book The Shortest History of England is out now. Before I go just a reminder that this podcast is funded by subscriptions to the monthly newspaper The Byline Times. Find out how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. And just a special word of thanks from me as well to all the people who help promote this podcast on social media. We don't have a marketing budget, so every share on Facebook, every retweet really does make a difference. So cheers and thanks also to Harvey White who does so much of the production legwork behind the scenes. I'm Adrian Goldberg. This has been the Byline Times Podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next time.